Well, it's an honor to, to be with you, and I bring greetings from what is now the Cornerstone Bible College and Seminary. Uh, we merged a little over a year ago with Grace School of Theology and Ministry, so we're excited to have a, a college component to what we do now. So any of you that are interested in getting some more Bible classes, we'd love to have you come and join us. So I... Uh, I'm always honored to be able to be here. Um, this is a living piece of significant church history right here at Valley Bible Church. I have been privileged to be here uh, in Vallejo. This is my 11th year at the seminary. And the last, uh, the first eight of those years or so, I have the privilege of getting to know and, and working with uh, Pastor Steve Fernandez, who's... Uh, now with the Lord. And through him, I first knew of your pastor by reputation before I ever met him. And hearing Steve's testimony and, and, and also the, the legacy and the impact of, our church, of, of Community Bible Church started as a, uh, as a church plant from Valley Bible Church. And so where I teach now at the Cornerstone Seminary, in many ways, the Cornerstone Seminary is the grandchild of Valley Bible Church. Because the church that you planted uh, was responsible in a large degree for the founding of the ministry that I now have the privilege of being a part of. And it all happened, and I say this a lot because I never, I, you know, I, this never gets old for me, is a lot of this happened because you had a pastor who looked beyond a group of people that the world had rejected and that even Christians would have had a hard time accepting a bunch of hippies and see what God can do. And that's the vision of Jesus. And I am so honored that I also have the privilege to know your pastor. He's one of my favorite people and uh, even a favorite sparring partner. I can rarely get the last word in uh, with him when we, when we uh, needle each other, but it's fun trying. And I take all his little lines and use them on the next unsuspecting person who doesn't know I just had a, was on the losing end of a sparring with Pastor Phil. So, um, but we have, a, we have a wonderful relationship and I'm so honored to be able to be here in his stead uh, this morning. So, Jesus is coming again. And it, it used to be it used to be that in churches, Bible-believing, evangelical churches all over this country, that this message was sounded over and over again. And I don't hear it as much anymore. And I think in many ways that's a tragedy. Because the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again is more than simply something we add to our doctrinal statement. There are huge Christian living practical implications to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. I think the Lord reintroduced me to this doctrine when I was working on my doctoral dissertation on the Thessalonian epistles. And one of the things that uh, I was reminded of is that when you put the, the two Thessalonian epistles together, every single chapter within two Thessalonian epistles, with the possible exception of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, every single 
chapter makes reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In several of those chapters, there are extended treatments of the second coming of Christ, like in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through the first uh, 11 verses of chapter 5. But what's fascinating to me is that Paul, in 1 Thessalonians, we won't have time this morning to look at 2 Thessalonians, but in 1 Thessalonians, Paul, rather than putting all of his treatment of the second coming of Christ in one place, he scatters the references throughout his epistles. I mentioned every single chapter in 1 Thessalonians references the second coming. Indeed, every single chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the second coming. And I don't think that's coincidental. I think Paul is constantly going back to the second coming of Jesus Christ as an anchor point for helping believers to live properly right now. So what I want to do is I, I want to simply survey. I want to read you the five references in 1 Thessalonians to the second coming of Christ. And I'm going to stop and I want to ask for God's help. And then we're going to unpack this with as much time as we have this morning. This is a challenge for me because I love detail. I'm the kind of guy when I started my ministry, I would do Jesus wept part 12. And today we're going to be looking at the second E in the word, or the, actually the first E in the second word, wept. And that's going to, what's the significance, you know. And, you know, I'd be like the Puritan who spent, you know, six, you know, 60 years preaching through Isaiah and died in chapter 11, you know. And there's, there's value to that, but the problem is that we can get our eyes so focused on the details that we forget the big picture. So for me, the value of a message, I'm going to try to cover a whole book in one sermon. And the age of miracles is not over. <laughs> this isn't normal for me to do this. So, uh, but part of the value of this for me is, and uh, hopefully for all of us, is to be able to see how the big picture of a book helps us anchor our lives right now as, as believers. So let's just survey these references. I want to begin at chapter 1 and verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians where Paul says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. You can't resist stopping and simply making a comment. We had a number of the songs that we sang this morning stress the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that power impacts our lives. And that is a significant biblical theme. What's interesting to me is that both here and in 1 Thessalonians 4, one of the other passages that talk about the second coming, is that Paul is going to go back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the basis for why we believe he's coming again. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so he's coming again. This is hugely significant. We're not serving a Savior that is still waiting in a tomb to experience the same thing we're anticipating. He's already raised. He's already ascended. He's already seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's because he lives and because he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God that he is going to come again in power. The first is proof for the second. The fact that we can look back to the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead means that we can look forward with absolute surety that he is going to come again. 
reigning and ruling. And Paul does this. We're waiting for him from heaven, to his son from heaven, whom he raised from, uh, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. End of chapter 2, verse 19. Paul looks ahead to the time when he will give an account for his ministry, and he asks this for, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. End of chapter 3, verse 13, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. And then in chapter 4, the passage that we're probably the most familiar with on this is actually a section that begins in chapter 4, verse 13, and goes all the way through chapter 5 and verse 11. I don't have time to read all of that this morning. I just want to pick up on three verses in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 15. And just to set the stage here, verse 15, Paul says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then in the very end of chapter 5, just before Paul gets to the final greetings, he has this one last prayer for the Thessalonians in 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can't quit here we have to read verse 24 faithful is he who calls you he will surely do it so five references to the second coming of Jesus Christ in first Thessalonians let me pray and then we'll show how why this made a huge difference for Paul and for us as believers Jesus thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be here thank you for uh, the great time of worship and the great time of singing and prayer and all the aspects of worship that we've already experienced. And thank you for your people. Thank you for the impact and the legacy of this church. Thank you for its ministry to me, and not simply in the times that I've been here, but even in uh, its faithfulness and shepherding and sending out a group of people to start Community Bible Church in Vallejo and I get to sit in on the fruits of the maturity of that ministry because this church had the vision of what God could do and multiplying itself in another part of this area. So I pray that you would strengthen and excel my brothers and sisters here to excel even more as Paul prayed for the Thessalonians in chapter 4, that they would excel even more in their love. And I pray that the words that you have given us would 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 build them up lord uh pastor larry prayed earlier lord that that we would not hear from me but that we would hear from you and i would pray that as well i'm just a messenger uh i'm just a herald and there can only be value in what i 
say here today, if it comes right from your word, and it can only be effective if your Holy Spirit is the teacher. So would you hide me behind your word, and would you cause me to humble myself and submit myself to your word, that your word would be used in the lives of my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Jesus Christ is coming again. And there are five implications of this that I want to unpack from this book and one implication for each chapter. And I'm going to do it a little differently than I had originally planned uh, because of our time uh, factor this morning a little bit. I want to go ahead and give you the five implications. And we're going to be spending most of our time this morning looking at the first two, but I want to at least tell you what the five are in case I run out of time, which wouldn't be unprecedented in my case. And they're all S's, so it should be easy to remember in this regard. Number one, when Jesus Christ comes again, number one, our salvation will be complete. Our salvation will be complete. That's chapter one of 1 Thessalonians. When Jesus comes again, our salvation will be complete. Chapter two, when Jesus comes again, our service or ministry will be rewarded. When Jesus comes again, our service will be rewarded, chapter 2. Chapter 3, when Jesus comes again, our suffering will be ended. Our suffering will be ended. Chapter 4, when Jesus comes again, our sanctification will be perfected. Very similar to the message of chapter 1, of 1 Thessalonians, but narrows it down to the issue of sanctification, a little bit more narrowly focused. And then chapter 5, when Jesus comes, our safety will be assured. Five implications of the second coming of Christ. For Paul, these truths meant that the second coming of Jesus Christ, as I mentioned earlier, is more than just something we affirm because we have it in our doctrinal statement. It makes a huge difference. In fact, the broader context of the Thessalonian, even the Corinthian epistles and the pastoral epistles, this is my dissertation, which I'm not going to be able to get into very much. I'll just use it as an illustration. For Paul, focusing on the second coming of Jesus Christ and reminding ourselves that Jesus Christ is coming again is one of the key weapons, if I can use that word, that Jesus gives us to help us overcome sin now. And in this, Paul agrees with James, he agrees with John, and he agrees with Peter, who all make the same point, which I hope I can remember to say later, because it's the argument of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. But let me begin with chapter 1. When Jesus Christ comes again, our salvation will be complete. Most of us, when we think of salvation, we think of salvation as something that's already happened to us. We think of texts like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And certainly passages like that are underscore a crucial element of our salvation. But we forget or we often don't consider that that is only the beginning. What Jesus did for us when he saved us is only the beginning. There is a whole element of our salvation that builds off of that. 
Paul alluded to this in Philippians 1 when he, he reminds the Corinthians. And uh, think of this verse. We all, many of us know this verse, but think of it in this connection. Paul says, being confident of this very thing. Remember this? I'm confident of this very thing that he who began or started a good work in you will be faithful to what? Complete it, but then what else do you have? Complete it until the day of Christ. See, there's a second coming again. So the second coming of Jesus Christ completes the work that he began. Because salvation in Scripture is in three tenses. The verb, it's interesting. Uh, B.F. Westcott, who was a Greek scholar of the, of the last century, or the 18, I guess two centuries ago now, the 1800s, was in England, and uh, uh, he was out walking on the street one day, and a little boy came up to him who was wanting to witness, had no idea he was talking to an eminent Greek scholar who'd written several commentaries and books of the Bible. He comes up and says, Mr., are you saved? And Westcott's response was to quote the three tenses of the verb sozo in Greek. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. I have no idea how the kid included that in his report back. I witnessed to this guy today, and he said, I have been saved, I'm being saved. I, you know, I don't know how that quite got reported. I don't think the kid probably quite knew what to do with that. Technically correct answer, because the word, the word to save is used in three different tenses in the Bible. You know, we talked about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, salvation in the past. You have passages like 1 Corinthians 1.18 that says the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but unto us who are being saved. It is the power of God, salvation in the present. But there's also a sense in which we're anticipating a future component of our salvation. For example, Romans 5, God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That points back to the past. But verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, verse 10, when we were the enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, uh, how much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Two times there, salvation looking ahead to the future. And later on in Romans, Paul's even going to use the noun. He says in Romans 13, 11, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now this is rich. Because we have salvation in the past, salvation in the present, salvation in the future. And theologians have noted this, and they've, they've, they've connected this up with three different phases of our salvation that all have to do with a changed relationship to sin. For example, we could talk about salvation in the past. That's what we call justification. And we have been saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death, and the ultimate death is eternal death. It's a separation between us and God. And praise God, if you're here this morning and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you never have to worry about that again. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. Sin can no longer condemn you. There is therefore, for all, uh, uh, there is therefore no condemnation, Romans 8, 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's gone. That sin and everything that 
had separated between us and God. It was placed on Jesus at the cross who endured the full measure of the wrath of God so that you and I would never have to experience it. That's a crucial part of our salvation. I no longer have to pay the penalty. I no longer have to face the penalty for my sin. But it doesn't stop there. Sanctification is salvation in the present tense. This is saving me from the power of sin. Sin will no longer have dominion over me, Romans 6, because I'm not under law, but under what? Grace. Sin doesn't have power over me. I still sin. But before I was saved, my life was characterized by sin. I couldn't help but sin. But now that I'm saved, my life, even though on occasion I sin, I'm painfully aware of the fact that I still sin, but it does not characterize me as a believer because there's been a radical change in my relationship to sin. It doesn't have power over me anymore. But praise God, there still is a future when I'm looking ahead. I love this mic. Um, I think I got it this time. There is a future that's coming when I have been saved from the penalty of sin, I am being saved by the, from the power of sin, but one day, and even so come quickly, Lord Jesus, please, on this one, one day I'm going to be saved from the very presence of sin and even the possibility of sin. There is going to come a day, and we call that glorification. There's going to come a day when I'm no longer going to even be able to sin. That's salvation in the future. I'm still waiting for that. If I claim that right now, I'm a liar, John says. If anyone says he doesn't sin, he's a liar. But there's going to come a day when that will be true. I won't be, I won't be sinning anymore, and I won't be able to sin anymore. It's when I see Jesus face to face. The future tends to salvation. Now, what does all this have to do with Roman, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1? You didn't think I was going to get back there, and I didn't think I was either until just now. Because when Paul talks about salvation in 1 Thessalonians 1, he's thinking of the whole picture and how Jesus' second coming brings it to its climax. How do I know this? Well, back up with me to chapter 1 and verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians, which is the main verse within this chapter. Paul is grateful to the Thessalonians, and he mentions the content of what makes him grateful, verse 3, of 1 Thessalonians 1 when he says, remembering before our God and Father. Now, these next words, I want you to look for something familiar as I read them. Something that should ring a bell to you. Remembering with that before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see anything there that reminds you of something? Three expressions. See faith, hope, and love there? It's a trio that shows up all over the place in Scripture. Of course, the most famous one for us is what? It's Corinthians 13, right? Now abides faith, hope, and love. Paul ends the great love chapter with these words that now abides faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why would, why would Paul say that love is the greatest? fascinating question. I sat in an audited class a couple years ago with a New Testament scholar by the name of D.A. Carson who was commenting on this passage. He was actually teaching through the Johannine epistles, but he referenced 1 Corinthians 13. 
And he made this comment. Love is the greatest because it's the only one of the three that God himself exercises. God doesn't have faith. What would God have faith in? God doesn't have hope. He's the author of hope. But God is love. Love is the only one of those three that's, that stretches into eternity. You know, faith becomes sight, hope becomes realized, but love continues even to eternity. And so in 1 Corinthians 13 is merely, though, the most famous of passages where faith, hope, and love show up as a trio. There's about seven or eight of these passages. Hebrews 11 through 13, the last part of Hebrews. Hebrews 11 is about faith. Hebrews 12 is about hope. Hebrews 13 is about love. And you see, you, you, you see the faith, hope, and love trio showing up over and over and over again in the New Testament. But notice something unique about 1 Thessalonians 1.3. Read it again carefully. And we don't have time to dwell on this. Let me just give you the punchline. Notice the order is different. It isn't faith, hope, and love. What's the order in 1 Thessalonians 1.3? It's faith, love, and hope. Why the difference? Why the difference in order? Short answer, faith is what looks back to salvation in the past. Love is the expression of salvation in the present. Hope in Scripture, whenever it's used, is always forward-looking. And it has nothing of the idea that we often have when we use the word hope. I hope I remembered to do that when I use that expression. There is a significant amount of doubt involved in whether I will remember to do that. And we use the word hope with the idea that there's a lot of doubt involved. In Scripture, when the scripture uses the word hope, there is not a smidgen of doubt involved in the word. Ho the difference between what, uh, what hope is pointing to is something that is not yet seen, but will be seen. Romans 8, which is hopefully one of the passages I get to quote later. Hope is something that we see that will be accomplished and will be fulfilled in the future. So faith looks back to what God saved us from, the penalty of sin. Love is the expression of salvation in the present. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you what? If you have love one to another. Hope looks ahead to the future, to the time when Jesus Christ will come and will redeem us and save us and take us from the very presence of sin. How do I know Paul has this in mind? Look at the end of 1 Thessalonians 1 again. Chapter 1 and verse 9 Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the testimony that they had that, were, that was being reported by believers around the area there. They themselves report concerning uh, us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. That's salvation in the past. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's salvation in the present. And to wait. Verse 10. That's salvation in the future past, present, future. The beautiful thing about the second coming of Jesus Christ is that it reminds us that the same God who began the work of salvation will infallibly, emphatically complete it. There is no doubt about it. It's why the second coming of Christ 
is so important because without the second coming of Christ, we have an incomplete salvation. Sin has not been, well, not, would not have been finally and fully dealt with. Sin wins if Jesus doesn't return. But because Jesus will return, he wins because he's already won. And he is right now ruling and reigning. And he will one day put down all of his enemies, including sin. That's why the second coming is so important. And putting our focus on that rem reminds us that the work that Jesus Christ is right now doing in your life and in my life, he is in the process of bringing to its intended end. Complete. Our salvation's complete. Number two. Chapter two, our service will be rewarded. Chapter two is a very fascinating chapter, and I wish I had more time to develop a little bit of the background of 1 Thessalonians 2. Uh, if you remember when Paul founded the church at Thessalonica, he could only be there a short time before he was run out of town. The riots that seemed to Paul, follow Paul everywhere showed up at Thessalonica and chased him out of town. And so he left the city, he had to leave the city before he was able to really complete his discipleship of the Thessalonians. And he kept trying to get back there. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, he talks about the fact that we tried more than once, but Satan hindered us. And when Paul couldn't stand it anymore, he finally sent Timothy back to see how the Thessalonians were doing. But the problem was that when Paul got kicked out of the city, his enemies in the city used that as evidence that Paul wasn't really, a, he didn't really care. He was a hireling. He was all this, that, and the other, and severely attacked Paul's ministry. And that's the context in which we have 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul is presenting a defense of his ministry. But in the process of doing that, he gives us six amazing word pictures of a pastor. And if I, if I can focus my comments for just a few minutes on those here who are pastors, who are elders, but don't the rest of you tune out. Because Ephesians 4 says that we're all called to ministry. Part of the role of pastors is they equip us for the ministry that God has called us to. So this is application to all of us. It has special application to those who are pastors or church leaders. God gives us six amazing word pictures in this chapter. Pastors or elders or teachers, Bible teachers, have boldness as a soldier, verses 1 and 2. They have the faithfulness of a steward, verses 3 and 4. They have the gentle compassion of a mother. Paul uses a beautiful word picture of a, of a nursing mother caring for an infant. Pretty hard to get more compassionate than that. And that's the picture that Paul uses for a pastor in verses 5 to 8. He, the faithful instruction of a father, verses 9 to 12, the authority of a herald in verses 13 to 16, and the affection of a friend, verses 17 to 20. You have all these beautiful word pictures and different ones. And, 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 and among other things, what Paul, Paul is doing is pointing us to the fact that pastors ought to be balanced. There are some people who take the boldness part of verses 1 and 2 as if that's the only thing that ought to characterize them. And they end up pastoring like a bull in a china shop. You know, they'll, oh, they're bold and they're courageous and they drive people away because they're not compassionate. 
There are times when we have to be bold. There are times when we have to stand up and be courageous. But if that's all that characterizes us, we're going to simply be uh, a caricature of what Jesus was like. And so on. And, uh, and same thing with you go to the other extreme. If we're compassionate but without being courageous, then we're going to have a weak need, wussified ministry at that point. I don't know if that's a verb, but I just made it up. Um, we're we're going to have a, 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 a ministry that has no content, that has no character to it, but it's compassionate. Paul's calling to a balanced picture. It's a great, this is, this is a great passage for those of us who serve in vocational ministry to constantly go back to, to ask ourselves, are we modeling the traits and characteristics in this chapter? But here's the point I think God would have us to draw for, for this morning. There's one thing about ministry, and that is particularly ministry of, that's related to the Word and preaching and proclaiming the Word, is that often people who serve in that capacity aren't appreciated for what they do. They're often attacked. Their motives are often questioned. And I have not met a single effective pastor in the years that I've been in ministry. I've not met a single... I've met a number of pastors who have never been attacked, but they're not very effective. I've never met a God-honoring, God-used pastor who's not experienced at some point along their life in ministry severe attacks. And when that happens, there's a twofold danger. One is that you become men-pleasers and seek to get your approval from men. You modify because you want to please people. The other danger is that you become cynical and you start to, you know, have a rotten attitude about the people that God has called you to minister. You've heard people make the statement, you know, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. You've heard that sometimes? And people will say that once, and it's kind of a funny joke, but when they say it three or four times, you get the impression they really believe it. And this is where, for a pastor who's experiencing great attacks in their ministry, there's a couple of things we need to remember. Number one, our approval does not come this side of eternity. There comes a time when we will stand before Jesus and he will tell us, well done, the good and faithful servant. Paul hoped for this. When Paul says, I've finished the course, I'm now ready to be offered, he says, and I know in verse 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, there's waiting for me a crown of righteousness which he will award to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all those who love his appearing. The beautiful thing is this is what Paul was holding on to. Look again at the end of chapter 2. He asked the question, this is beautiful to me, this is Paul the pastor coming out at the end of chapter 2. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not you? He's talking about believers here. He's talking about the Thessalonians. They are part of Paul's reward. They are part of Paul's joy. Paul didn't have the ministry would be great if it weren't for the people kind of mindset. People were very definitely part of the ministry. They were not only part of his ministry, but they were part of the joy of hearing the well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
There are people that have had a tremendous impact in my life ministry-wise. I look forward to being there on the day when I hear God say to them, well done, thou good and faithful saying. And I hope I get to be there and say, amen. Because I was one of the ones that was impacted by this man's ministry. And this is the beauty, this is the transcendent beauty of ministry, even in the midst of intense opposition, to remember that one day it's Jesus that we will one day appear before. And he's the one who vindicates us, not human opinion this side of eternity. And keeping our focus on that is what helps us to remain triumphant and joyful, even in the midst of incredibly painful circumstances in ministry, which actually leads us to chapter 3. In three minutes, I have two more chapters. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes, our suffering will be ended. Chapter th- verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, Paul is reminded the Thessalonians that he had told them beforehand that they would experience great afflictions. Suffering is part of what happens when we live in a fallen world, for one, th- for one thing. The second thing is that suffering as a believer is something that Jesus said would happen to us. Paul corroborated this later when he says that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. There are two things, at least two things, that help us to respond to suffering when it comes in a proper way. One thing is to remember that there is a redemptive purpose in suffering that happens. It's Joseph who can come to the end of his life and say in Genesis chapter 50, you meant this for evil, but God what? He meant it for good. Even the bad things that happen to us or the things that, the suffering that we undergo are things that God uses to make us more conformed to the image of Christ. But there's also a second thing. You can experience almost anything in intensity if you recognize that there's going to come an end to it. And I wish I had time to unpack these passages, but let me just reference them to you. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Paul says, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. And Romans 8 especially, because Paul talks about uh, his sufferings, and then he ends with a state, he talks about all of creation being subjected in hope, but then he ends with we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. But if we hope for that which we don't see, then we with patience are waiting for it. There's that word hope. Again, looking ahead. Right now we're in the experience of all creation being subjected to bondage because of sin. But looking ahead to the fact that when we will one day be delivered from all of that is what gives us the strength to endure incredible suffering now. Whatever form it may take for you. Whether it is Satan accusing you because of past sins that have now been forgiven by the blood of Christ, or whether it's a physical affliction, or whether it's breaking hearts over family members that are walking away from Jesus, or whatever the case may be that's contributing to your suffering, it has an end. It will come to an end one day. And this is what the second coming of Jesus is. Number four and number five, very quickly, sanctification will be perfected. This is the heart of 1 Thessalonians. You're going to have a whole discussion that begins in chapter 4 and goes through most of chapter 5, 
Sanctification has four components. There's a general component. There's just a general call to sanctification, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, but there's also a negative component. This is the will of God, even your sanctification that you what? Abstain from fornication. That's 3 to 8 of chapter 4. You keep from sin, and the, the sin that Paul uses here to illustrate the point is fornication, but that's not the only sin. It's a sin, but not the only sin that you keep yourself from. But if we view sanctification as, per, as, as purely negative, we've missed the whole point. Because sanctification is not merely separation from sin, it's also separation to God. There's a positive component. So verses 9 to 12, you love one another. You excel even more in your love for one another. There's a positive display of sanctification. And then if you go to chapter 5 and verse 12, there's a fourth component. It's not only general, it's not only negative, it's not only positive, but number four, it's also corporate. You demonstrate sanctification in the way that you live with one another, particularly in the church. That's 5.12, almost to the end of the epistle. Now, right smack dab in the middle of that, you have this great lengthy discourse on Paul and the second coming. I don't think that's coincidental. Because the second coming of Jesus is the means by which God promotes holiness in our lives. Peter, after talking about the fact that all the earth is going to be destroyed with a fervent and seeing all these things are going to be destroyed, how ought you to be in, in holy living? Second Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 14. Um, and of course, John. I can't help but think of 1 John 3. Beloved, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him for we will see him as he is, but don't forget verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him, in Jesus, purifies himself. The second coming of Jesus Christ is one of the key means that God uses to keep us from sin. Sanctification will be perfected. Finally, number five, very quickly, our safety will be assured. I pray, God, verse 23 of chapter 5, that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the day of Christ. The point here, very simply, is this. This world is a very dangerous place for believers. I think you probably have noticed that. And even in our culture here in America, there is an increasing intensity to the hostility against believers. You know, anyone who doesn't see that has their head in the sand. There's increasing hostility. And you're wondering, why would God leave us here? Why would Jesus say, like in Matthew chapter 10, I'm sending you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves? That's a pretty intimidating picture, but it's not intimidating for the wolves. They're not sitting there in the corner cowering, wondering, Look out, the sheep are coming. But it's very intimidating for the sheep unless you remember that the one who sends you is the one who goes with you. If God be for us, what? Who can be against us? You see, promises like you have in chapter 5 and verse 23 remind us that when God sends us into a dangerous situation, to do his work in his way and proclaim his truth and his gospel, he will protect us. Even death is a protection. Even physical death is a protection. 
And God will do this. That's why verse 24 of chapter 5 is so important. Faithful is the one who calls you who will also do it. So my brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is coming. He's coming again. And because he's coming again, our salvation will be complete. Our service will be rewarded. Our suffering will be ended. Our sanctification will be perfected. And our safety will be assured. Brothers and sisters, build your lives up with that truth. Because that's what Paul is wanting us to get from 1 Thessalonians. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your people. Thank you that I get to preach to brothers and sisters. Many of them have been serving the Lord for years, and, and they know the beauty of the gospel. They know the beauty of your work in their lives. And I pray that you would use a message like this to just build them up even more and strengthen them in their own walk with you. We need your help. None of us is sufficient for these things. And so we know that you have promised to be with us. We know that you have promised to complete the work that you began in us. And we just pray that you would do that and use these words in some way to bring that about in the lives of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.